welcome. Welcome subscribers. Welcome listeners. Welcome to the community of 3CR. To the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. Now, if you listen to 3CR a lot, you probably know that we exist because we've been having the show. Um, sometimes it's half hour, sometimes it's an hour. We've been on the air here at 3CR for decades. In fact, it's the, the origins of the Dogs Program on 3CR are lost in the mists of time. Because that's how long we've had to be here to defend the interests of public school students. Not the beautiful, gorgeously well-dolled out, um, making it into the papers, private school students. They can sort themselves out. And by the way, they're lovely kids too. And good luck to them. And we're not here to, to bash and bastardize kids for the choices that their parents make in terms of what school they send them to. We're here for something that's very simple. We are here to support the children in the state schools all around Australia. Because the state governments run the state schools and every state school has a really simple motto. Something they have to do. It's part of their values. If you turn up at the door, the principal will take you into their office and say, where do you live? And the child will tell them. And they say, well, if you live there, you, you live near our school. Would you like to come to our school? You're very welcome. And do you know what they don't do? They do not ask that child how much money their parents earn. They don't get the parents in and ask them either. They do not ask, and so what religion are you? It's very important to our school that you follow the tenets of our religion before you come through our doors. So they don't ask how much money, and they don't ask what religion, because they're a state school. And this is simple principle. Education by us, a civilised nation of our children, free of sectarian divide and free of capitalist, the, the capitalist marketplace or whatever they want to call it, is something that we think needs defending. And we're right. We're actually, we're, we're actually right. It does need defending. I have articles from most of the major spreadsheets scattered about me in my covidinous retreat. And all of them are attacking the state school system systematically in different ways, with different authors, with different words. They just don't like it. They see the need for it because there's a lot of people the private school system doesn't want to educate. They've got to go somewhere. And that's fine. But the rest of it, oh, it's just the rhetoric, the rhetorical knots education people twist themselves in to actually state public schools are in any way a benefit to the public is just extraordinary. But to that end, we're going to focus very much on something that happened today, or yesterday and the day before, a series of articles sparked by Adrian Piccoli from the Gonski Institute, and we'll be playing some various things from the Gonski Institute, an interesting bunch of people. He put forward the notion that primary schools, in primary schools, the government pay all the fees. The government pay all the fees for all the private primary schools and all the private state schools. As 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 pay as payment for that, the private school cannot choose and dismiss students on the basis of their income or that child's religion. That's it. That's the deal. You get all the money. 
as they say, on the shark tank or whatever it is. You get all the money, but you can't go around being all religious. You're just a school, which is absolutely fine, except for reasons which I'm going to... Jean is champing at the bit. She thinks this is absolutely ridiculous. So do I. It's a system that doesn't work. And we'll be examining this principle, this idea that's been floated. Firstly, in a press release... Press release number 854, which is Jean's new version of her world-famous press release, The Siren Song of Integrated Private Schools. But can private ever be public? Jean, I invite you, I invite you at this very special time to share with us your press release, which you spent so much time on. Well, thank you, Robert. Here's press release 854. The siren song of integrated private schools. But can private ever be public? The business model of the private sector has come under strain, as we've found in the last few weeks. Gross inequities resulting from public funding of private schools are exposed by catastrophes. Witness the current plague. And consider the very basic recurrent funds uh, the 2018 information you can get from the My School website. Just for a few Victorian schools, you'll find that these figures illustrate a system for children of an oligarchy, not a democracy. But as the demands for ever greater public funding of failing and flailing private schools hit the Treasury, the siren sound of an integrated public-private system is heard in the land once again because we've been here before, about 20 years ago. What does this mean when I say the siren sound of an integrated public system? It means fully funding the recurrent costs of non-government, that is private schools, which then cannot charge fees and are expected to have an open enrolment policy. But they are still run by private institutions, particularly churches. Accountability to public money would be expected, although the administration and ownership of funds and property would remain the preserve of the private system. So the Catholic education officers and some of the private other systems haven't had a very good track record on accountability and what would the government do to bring them to the party to be properly accountable for public funds? Such private schools will be public in access and input of public funds only. The ownership and the control of such schools would still be private. And the recommendations being made are only for the primary sector, not the secondary sector, where the big inequalities exist. Taxpayers would continue under this system, this integrated system, to enrich private, often religious corporations, multinational corporations, some of them. And given the track record of private systems in the past, According to the Auditor-Generals at both federal and state levels, accountability, we believe, would still be an issue. But 
Professor Piccoli at the Gonski Institute at the University of New South Wales is singing the current song from the Integration Hymn Sheet. On August the 11th in 2020, in an opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald, he had a very interesting article which got about two, well over 250, I think, comments. It's been very interesting and not only did it occur in the Sydney Morning Herald, it also occurred in The Age. It has been given oxygen on in the conversation, on Inside Story and even The Australian. So Mr Piccoli knows how to deal with the press with his ideas. So this is a very interesting article and a bit later this afternoon we'll ask Dale to read it out for you. A dog's note that the denominational system, which is our current private system, failed in the 19th century and is still failing our children in the 21st century, full stop. Why should it be resurrected and kept afloat with taxpayers' money again and again when all it does is divide, segregate our children into the haves and the have-nots? Look at the current level of inequity, which is evident on the MySchool website, and which we have been telling you about uh, because the figures are all there and they're being analysed by the Save Our Schools people in Canberra. Dogs suggest that Pakol is well-meaning. He's not a bad guy. Actually, he's quite a good guy. He's the ex-Minister for Education in New South Wales, and he was a whistleblower. Uh, concerning the lack of accountability for the Catholic system in that state. And he kicked up a fuss because his own child was going to a Catholic school that was being shortchanged by the Catholic Education Office. So he's well-meaning. He thinks that he's doing a good thing, this is a good idea, but the dogs believe that he's mistaken. Because the Catholic system has thousands of years of experience in the art of assembly, and such a multinational corporation alongside almost every other religious system will never give up control and ownership of property, let alone accountability for public money. The only system that ever has, ever can and ever will offer equity, accountability and public ownership and control is a genuinely public system, which we've got. And over 65%, 66%, two-thirds of our children attend these schools. So the time has come not to fully fund them, but to just take them over. All the schools that are due to go bankrupt because of the market, the market economy is collapsing. Without both fees and public funding, and we should make them into genuinely public schools. Because our children are the safest with a proven public system that is always going to be there for them, rather with, than with public private quangos whose market business plan means that they could be here today and gone tomorrow. So that is 
0800-854-854. We'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back and Dale will be telling you what Mr. Piccoli thinks we should do. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mawabohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio. Your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419-8377. Eugene, for your world-famous press release. This is a significant, significant article. In fact, it's not surprising it's come out now because here in Covidness times, the writing is now on the wall. There are, as we speak, private schools going bankrupt in Australia. They're not letting us know yet. They're zombie schools, but that's exactly what's happening. Now, two things I would like you to please keep in mind as you listen to Dale's dulcet tones. First thing, Dale will only be talking about primary schools. She won't be talking about secondary schools where real disadvantage starts to get entrenched. The second thing I would like you to bear in mind is that what Jean said, the most relevant thing I think about what Jean said, was it said that private schools in this new model would have public access and public input, but they would not have public ownership and public control, as such schools would still be private. So the question I would like you to ask yourself, as Dale shares what Mr Piccoli said, what if you have a teacher who is a bad, bad man? Currently, in a public school, if you have a teacher who is a bad, bad man, he is sacked. People come to his school, they examine his practices, they determine his badness, and he leaves. Sometimes followed by police. 
This has happened since time immemorial in schools. Schools have to have mechanisms for dealing with bad, bad teachers. In many private schools in Australia over the last few years, there's been a lot of bad, bad men in private schools. The way they have been dealt with by their institutions, private institutions, has been in-house and the control over what happens to that bad man is the responsibility of the school, not the police, not the department, the school, or in some cases uh, the Catholic Education Office because they have a, their own bureaucracy, the Catholics do, to deal with such things. The bishop decides. So as Dale t- talks about this, I want you to understand that these private schools that are public, that are run with public money, if you have a bad, bad teacher, there's a difference. That's right. So when it comes time to listening to what Dale has to say, think about that bad man and what can be done to get rid of him in a private school using Bacoli's method. So now, rather than listening to me giving grim warnings, let's hear what Bacoli actually has to say, not using his voice, but using his words with Dale. Thanks, Robert. Yes, I've got the article in question here uh, by Professor Piccoli. Uh, he wrote on August 11th, the biggest structural problem in Australian education is that a broken school choice model is driving an ever-growing segregation of students between schools. Australia ranks as the fourth most segregated education system in the OECD. In Australia, more than half, the now dis- half of our disadvantaged students are concentrated into disadvantaged schools, while less than 5% of disadvantaged students attend advantaged schools. School choice has not delivered the education outcomes that Australia needs. The current structure of Australian education with one free, publicly funded sector and another sector that receives public funding but charges fees to parents and sets us apart from most other countries around the world. We are structurally unique and not in a good way. Students from higher income families and socially advantaged backgrounds tend to be more concentrated in non-government and selective public schools, while students from disadvantaged backgrounds are more concentrated in other schools. In Australia, public schools enrol 66% of all students, but 79% of students from the bottom of the socio-educational advantage quartile. Higher performing countries like Canada, Finland and Japan do not have this kind of segregation. It's not just school fees at non-government schools that drives this segregation problem. Public school systems also segregate students based on academic achievement and other desirable attributes through selective schools. The My School website further fosters unhealthy competition between schools for the most desirable students. If Australia wishes to have a world-class school system, the current structure of schooling and the inequity it creates is not going to take us there. One idea to improve Australia's 
equity problem is for governments to fully publicly fund all schools, including those that are operated by the non-government sector. Yes, yes, publicly funded funding all schools is a very big structural change with multiple complexities to resolve. Given that complexity, Australia could start by fully funding all primary schools using the same needs-based funding formula for all schools, irrespective of who operates the school. Full public funding wouldn't come without conditions. Non-government operated primary schools would not be allowed to charge fees and must enrol, suspend and expel students on the same basis as public schools. This idea is neither new nor radical. Canada has operated this way for decades and finds itself with an education system far more equitable and much higher performing than Australia's. It is a radical idea for Australia and never really taken seriously before because of the cost. But given public funding of non-government schools has reached such a high point, the government might as well bite the bullet and fully fund them as public schools. Eliminating primary school fees means the cost is no longer a factor when when parents look to choosing a school. State and territory governments continue to operate public schools and the existing mostly faith-based organisations would continue to operate their schools. Faith-based schools could still teach religion as they do now. If some schools still want to charge fees, then that's okay, but they won't be entitled to any government funding, in which case they can enrol whoever they like. Australia would then have a much more equitable education system where all schools and all students are funded on the same basis and have the same enrolment rules. The additional cost of full recurrent public funding of all non-government primary schools is estimated to be about $500 million a year across Australia. Given Australian governments spending almost $60 billion a year on school education, this equates to a relatively small investment into what would be one of the most significant funding and structural reforms of Australian education. The public education lobby would initially find such a suggestion of fully funding non-government schools to be outrageous until it remembers this is what it's been arguing for for decades. In a sense, all primary schools will become public schools and won't need to charge fees. With cost no longer a barrier, the discriminatory impact of fees that public education advocates have always railed against will no longer exist. It will make sense to match this reform to a reform of public selective schools, particularly in New South Wales, where they proliferate. If our aim is to make education more equitable in this country, then we cannot continue to further crowd advantaged students into some schools while while we lead the other schools to do a disproportionate amount of the heavy lifting. I get that this is a big leap and there would be hundreds of complexities to resolve. I've been a minister and I know that structural reform is hard. While there is constant public and political demand to fix Australian education, the necessary structural changes are always off the table because the existing structures are so entrenched. The problem with that rhetoric is that is, is there is no real fix without major structural reform. It is like telling someone to renovate a house but only allowing them to change the carpet. The clear lessons from other school systems around the world is that equity matters if we want to achieve excellence. 
without difficult structural changes in Australia, continuing to invest ever more money into an already inequitable education system will have limited impact. That's why this could just be the change we are looking for. And that's those are the words of Adrian Piccola, the Piccoli, the director of the Gonski Institute for Education and a former New South Wales Education Minister. Thank you very much. Now we'll be back at the Dodge program on 3CR855 and AM Dial, podcast all over the WWs. Like a rash at 3CR dot. Oh, 3CR dot. What is oh, it? What is it? AU. Oh, thank you. How, how can I forget that? 3CR dot all day. Also, our little dogs website. You can go there, but it bites. Yeah, that's right. That's ADOGS, Australian Council for Defensive Government Schools, A-D-O-G-S dot info. Is that right, Dale? It's www.adogs.info. Dale, can you come and organise my life, please? (laughs) You're very very good. This is why the Dogs Program has a producer, and the producer, his name is Dale, the producer's name's not wrong. But we'll be back with it, what there is of it, after these messages. Hey, all you mob, it's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good on our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. The Queen Victoria Women's Centre is calling all craftivists to join us and make a fuss. Make a Fuss is a crowdsourced, craftivist project looking for submissions on the theme of women's silence. If you've experienced a time when you didn't want to make a fuss, why not get crafting and make some noise? For more information, go to qvwc.org.au and click on Make a Fuss. Submissions close August 19th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. Well, this isn't going to take long to tear apart, is it? Uh, Mr Piccoli, he's a, he's a good bloke and he has good intentions, but as they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and this one is a classic. He's chosen the low-hanging fruit. The Australian primary school system is not particularly, is not particularly um, inequitable because Australians, when they send their kids to prim- primary schools, they'll send their kids to the local one where they got their friends and their mates and they can muck around. And rich kids mix in with poor kids, mix in with, with African kids, mix in with Italian kids, mix in with races and religions and... Well, I don't know about you, but like my, my primary school, you didn't even ask. You're too busy having fun with your mates. All you knew about all this stuff about religion and, and culture and... Class and that sort of stuff was that people, other people's houses smelled different to yours. My house smelled pretty pobo and other people's houses smelled really nice. But that's it. That's, that, that's the only difference that I ever noticed as a small kid in primary school. 
low-hanging fruit, Mr. Bacoli. It's high schools where the inequity is. It's places like Geelong Grammar, Scotch, Wesley, Xavier, Halebury, Ivanhoe Grammar, Aquinas, De La Salle, Hilbert Parade College, Simmons College, Methodist Ladies College, Presbyterian Ladies College, Calathumpian Ladies College. All these places, they're not going to have a bar of this. They're going to go, no, keep your money. We don't need it. What, 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 what do I mean by this? Well, currently, Scotch Grammar every year gets $58 million from private sources. Gets $5 million from the federal government and $1.3 million from the state and federal, from, from, from the state government. $58 million from private sources, including parents' fees. But not just parents' fees. Oh no. Property investments that are, that, that are vesting for them. Oh, very nice. Are they going to be told to do what by the government? Are they going to have the government come and audit them? No. I say get stuff. You can take it, you can take your control and you can take your money away. So what Bacali's talking about in the end is not every private school is going to go for this because they're arrogant so-and-sos. They like being arrogant so-and-sos and there's no reason why they won't. It'll be the up and coming outer urban struggling private schools which shouldn't be there in the first place, quite frankly. They'll go, yeah, we'll just, oh yeah, but when they say they have to be like state schools, this is how, this is how private schools exclude kids. They go, it's a terribly sensitive and sorry thing, but I think your child's education would be better served at some other school. I'm afraid upon this, we have to insist. That's what private schools do. They don't like it, they just get rid of it. It's very, very simple. And they can do it with such a nice voice, just like Jesus would. Sorry, no, that's blasphemy. No, no, Jesus would never say such a thing, and I'm right to, to bring that in. But quite simply, up until this point, private religious schools in Australia have got around every law up until this point that is not to their liking. They've said, you change that law, Labor Party, or we'll make sure you don't get elected. You change that law, Liberal Party, because, or, or we'll make sure your minister gets sacked, which has only happened a couple of years ago. This is just, he's taken low-hanging fruit when it comes to the real stuff, the high school business, about the, you know, the sorting hat. It all gets very Slytherin and Gryffindor as far as I'm concerned. And, and, and Piccoli's suggestions don't really cut it as far as I'm concerned. But I'm not the only person that thinks this. Uh, interesting people, Diane Ravitch. And Jane Carrow have got something to say about it as well. So, again, their voices are nicer than mine, so I'm going to pass her over to them. So, let's hear what these, these, these wonderful people have to think. Yeah, I'll just let the listeners know that um, we are now going to be listening to an excerpt from uh, a discussion on the privatisation of education. And uh, here at the Dogs, we love Diane Ravitch and we're very excited to include uh, her. Hello, I'm Jane Cutrow and welcome to Fighting the Privatisation of Education. I think this is an incredibly important conversation. And to that end, we have an incredibly distinguished special guest, um, someone I have admired from afar for a very long time. Her name is Diane Ravitch, and she is a long-time campaigner for public education in the United States 
and she has written many, many books on the subject and her latest is Slaying Goliath, which um, I can highly recommend. I've enjoyed reading it because it's hopeful. And I don't know about you, but right at the moment, I can use all the hope I can get. So um, it was uh, a great pleasure to read how parents and teachers and ordinary people in the US are fighting back and fighting back successfully against privatisation and extremely uh, wealthy and powerful companies and individuals. But for the benefit of the audience, hi Diane, how are you? Lovely to see you. Great to be with you, thank you. It's lovely to have you, I can't tell you what a thrill it is. And I thought for the benefit of the audience uh, watching us, it would be good to get an overview from you uh, to begin with of what where public education is at in America and the impact privatisation has been having and how you're fighting back. Well, it, we've had a very interesting conversation before we came online. Uh, two of my very good friends, uh, Pazzi Salberg and Angelo Gavrilatos, are here, and we were talking about the Australian system, which it turns out is, to my surprise, very different from the American system. Uh, we have a very strong tradition in this country of free and universal public education. And it's only been since about 1983 uh, that the system as we know it of public schooling has been under attack by people who seek to uh, privatize it, uh, who seek to create private management of public schools, or private management, not of public schools, but private management of public money, uh, and vouchers which would support religious schools. And I gather that you do this already in Australia, which I was quite surprised to learn. Uh, it's still uh, not a popular idea at all to send public money to religious schools here. Uh, in fact, we have 50 states, and whenever there's a vote put to the populace of do you support the idea of sending public money to religious schools, it's overwhelmingly defeated because most people went to public schools, believe in the principle of free public education, <laughs> and do not believe that the public should be supporting religious schools. Uh, and some of the strongest opponents of subsidizing religious schools are, um, are Christians, uh, Baptists in particular, uh, because they believe that if the government starts subsidizing religion, uh, then the government and religion will become entangled, and this will infringe upon religious liberty. So if you believe in religious freedom, the best way to protect it is to keep it free of entanglement with the government. And so uh, I, I'm uh, a scholar, I'm a historian, uh, but I also lead an activist group called the Network for Public Education. And we work very closely with uh, pastors, most of them Baptists, but not all of them Baptists. And they have been great allies in fighting uh, voucher legislation in, in many of the American states. Um, but the state of privatization is this. We have almost about half of our states, about half of our 50 states, have some form of voucher program. And actually very few children are enrolled in them. Usually it's anywhere in the range of 2 or 3%. Uh, one reason being that they're so poorly funded by the public uh, that to choose a religious school with a voucher is to choose a third-rate school because the religious schools don't get the same amount of funding as the public schools do. Uh, but the more virulent form of privatization is called charter schools. And charter schools are beloved by uh, big corporate interests, 
uh, by uh, wealthy individuals like the Walton family. The Walton family owns the Walmart stores, and they are uh, they're multi multi billionaires. And the reason why so many very wealthy people like privatization is that uh, they believe, first of all, that it can be used to to eliminate unions. They don't like teachers unions. And so, uh, of the charter schools and of the religious schools, easily 90, well, there are very few, if any, religious schools that have teachers' unions. And 90% of the charter schools are non-union. So, for the very wealthy uh, and the very, who merge with very right-wing, very conservative interests, uh, supporting privatization is a way of, of eliminating and blocking teacher unionization. Uh, the other aspect to uh, the, the privatization movement is its tie-in to testing. And testing has been, uh, since the passage of legislation by, the, by George W. Bush, who was elected president in 2000 in a hotly contested election, George W. Bush introduced a national testing program, which we had never had before. And the test results were used to rank schools and to say if your school has low scores, it can be closed, it can be privatized, it can be handed off to private interests. Uh, so the testing and the privatization go hand in hand. And uh, my organization and I personally have been extremely active in trying to uh, stop privatization. And the reason I wrote the book, The Slaying Goliath, was to celebrate the successes, uh, to celebrate the teachers who's, uh, even in states where they're not allowed to have unions, uh, their unions, they're unionized nonetheless, uh, but they have voluntarily uh, gotten together and, and said, uh, we, can, we will not stand for this anymore. They have not been able to stop the testing, uh, but we've had a very powerful movement of parents to say, we won't take the test. You can give the test, but we won't take it. Uh, and that's one of the uh, stories that I tell in the book. It's called the opt-out movement. We simply won't take your test. New York State had the largest of all the opt-out movements. Uh, I have to say that um, about 85% of the kids in America, between 85 and 90%, depending on the state, are attend public schools. Public schools are free. Uh, if you live, uh, most public schools have, are funded based on property taxes. So if you live in a relatively affluent or middle class area, uh, you will have a very good public school. You might even have an excellent public school. There are many excellent public schools. If you live in a very impoverished area, uh, you really uh, uh, will have large class sizes, and you're dependent on the, the public funding to try to equalize uh, the uh, availability of resources. But nonetheless, about 85 to 90 percent are in public schools, and the struggle we have here is to stop the choice movement because the choice movement is now firmly tied into uh, the very conservative right wing associated with Donald Trump with his education secretary, Betsy DeVos, uh, and the Democratic Party, which many of us hope will win the next election, uh, we hope will restore uh, funding to public schools as it should be. Uh, I have to say that one of the things that had a big influence on me, and I, I used to be on the other side. My personal story is another story. I was on the other side for a long time. And I changed sides around 2008, 9, 10, and wrote a book about it called The Death and Life of the Great American School System, uh, warning people that testing and choice were doing terrible damage to our public schools. And right after I wrote that book, I went to the Finnish consulate 
to learn about why uh, Finland had done so well on the international test called PISA. And I met this very attractive man named Posse Salberg. <laughs> and I, he described what it was like in Finland. And I said, but how do you hold teachers accountable if you don't test children? They don't have standardized tests in their schools. And he said, in, in Finnish, we don't have a word for accountability. Mm. Uh, the closest word would be responsibility, and our teachers are very responsible. Well, I was so taken with my conversation that it had a huge impact on me, and I then made a point of visiting Finland, visiting schools, and I realized that the way things are in the U.S., the way things are in Australia, is not the way things ought to be. Finland is the way things ought to be. Uh, and you're very lucky to have Ponzi with you. We certainly are. We'll be hearing a bit from Parsi, um and Angelo in uh, just a few minutes. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? The whole world talks about Finland as being the ideal and um, its uh, results, certainly in international comparisons, um, hold that, uh, give the evidence to that. And yet we won't do it. We won't do it. We won't take the lessons, which is interesting seeing we're talking about education. What... I mean, you've talked a little bit about the motivations behind um, privatisation and school choice. I mean, is it religion, um, the, the desire to um, indoctrinate and to continue religious um, control over, over the population to some extent? And it's interesting to me that America is a much more religious country than Australia. Australia really wears its religion, if it has one, very, very lightly. Whereas for America, it's very much a fundamental part of how you began, indeed. And yet you are much more committed to public schools, to secular public schools, than we are. Is it religious? Is it economic? I mean, we had saturated markets um, after in, in, in the 80s in terms of um, selling stuff to people. And so that was when corporations started to move into areas that previously they'd left to government, like education. So they'd, they had to expand to grow and they had to go into new places, um, including law and order and education and a whole lot of other places. So is it economic? And is it ideological? Is it part of the neoliberal wave that, um, you know, kind of rolled over the whole of the Western world anyway, uh, particularly with the Reagan and Thatcher period? Or is it a combination of all three? What do you think, Diane? Well, I would say it's a combination of all three. And I've always uh, had trouble identifying one specific motive. You might say that with religious groups, they're interested in expanding their reach and, and having public support for what they're doing anyway. Uh, and they, it, it, it helps them spread their message if the people who attend their church can also send their children to their school. Um, so there is a religious aspect to it. Uh, there is an economic aspect because there is a lot of money to be made, particularly in the charter sector, not in the voucher sector so much. Um, there's a lot of, of uh, fraud and, and abuse and waste in the charter sector because basically the way charter works, the charters work, is that uh, many of our, most of our states have legislation allowing charters. And that means that Anyone can apply to get a charter to open a school. You don't have to, in most states, you don't have to be an educator. And so uh, corporations have moved into this, and also some very uh, dubious characters who are running for-profit operations. So they, they may run a non-profit school, but the corporation that's running it is for-profit. Uh, and then when you look at even the ones that are, say that they're non-profit, they're paying themselves outrageous salaries 
and they, there's a, a lot to be gained by them by multiplying. They, they get one charter, and then they have ten charters, and then they have fifty charters. And uh, each of these charters is producing public money, and there's no oversight. Hmm. And um, just in the latest round of, of coronavirus relief funds, the charters were allowed to apply for funding as public schools and then turn around and apply for more money as nonprofit organizations and to get money that public schools were not allowed to access. And a great, as much as, I don't know, a billion, two billion dollars have gone to charter schools because they, they see themselves as small businesses. Uh, so there is a pecuniary motive on the part of many of the charter operators. Uh, some of them may be paying themselves millions of dollars a year. Um, the virtual charters, which are online charters, are, are big money makers because they get the same tuition from the state as a regular public school, and all they supply is a computer and online instruction. And uh, if someone has 10,000 children enrolled, uh, and each of them brings with them tuition of $10,000, that's $100 million, and all they're doing is handing out computers uh, and, and having teachers teach remotely. So uh, there's a massive amount of fraud associated with the online charter business. Um, but this doesn't seem to tarnish their reputation. The charters are beloved by billionaires. They're beloved by Wall Street. Uh, and this is, I think, fundamentally the third thing you mentioned, which is the neoliberal impulse, the idea of marketizing everything and turning everything into a free market where uh, competition is supposed to lift all boats. But what we've learned is that it doesn't. Um, the, the cities, we have some cities that, that are desperately impoverished where there's tremendous inequity, and now they're, they have many, many charter schools. Uh, in uh, Milwaukee, there's a public system, a charter system, and a uh, voucher system. All three of them do that terribly. Uh, in Detroit, which is the poorest performing city in the, in the nation, um, about, ton, about half the kids are in charters, and they do as poorly, if not worse, than the kids in public schools. So the money that should go to build one strong system uh, is instead divided into two very weak systems. And I think the neoliberal impulse is, is very powerful because the billionaires are not investing in charters to make money. They're already billionaires. They're investing in it in order to spread the market ideology that has been so very beneficial to themselves. Mm. Yes, we can certainly recognise the uh, two systems uh, and the problem that that has. In Slaying Goliath, you talk a lot about how in 2018 teachers took to the streets in America. Um, it's my observation as a non-teacher that teachers are awfully well behaved. They, like, they, they obey the rules. There's something about being a teacher uh, creates that. It's very hard to get them to really take on um, the, the powers that be in a rebellious way, which has happened in America. Um, has that turned the tide? Is that having um, a real effect on the way Americans are starting to think about this school system? Well, the reason I wrote Slaying Goliath was because I was very moved by what started in the spring of 2018, two years ago, a little over two years ago. And that was when the teachers of West Virginia, which is a very, very poor state, uh, decided enough is enough, and their salaries were very low. Their health insurance had just been increased dramatically. Uh, and they said the only way anything would change was if they went on strike. 
So there was a lot of planning that went into this. Uh, technically, they're not allowed to strike in West Virginia. They could all be arrested for doing this. But every there are 55 districts in this, in this small state, and every superintendent in the state of West Virginia decided to close the schools. So they weren't on strike. The schools were closed. But they were on strike. They all met, uh, rallied at the state capitol. They all wore matching red T-shirts, and they had slogans that they chanted. They were w very well prepared. And the two uh, existing, there are two teachers' unions in the U.S., the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers, and they both supported the strike in West Virginia. And that strike then uh, led to them getting some benefits, not everything they asked for, but certainly more than they would have gotten had they done nothing at all. And that was followed by strikes in other states, which I described in the book, in Oklahoma, in Arizona, in California, uh, in Colorado, in Kentucky. And uh, every state had its own issues, uh, but the basic issues were the same. Teachers were underpaid, classes were overcrowded, uh, there had not been a significant investment in infrastructure and capital spending. And uh, teachers realized, and the more they saw it happening, the more it was, became contagious. And they realized that if they didn't fix it, no one would. Uh, and what was very inspiring at that time was that uh, this was in the spring of 2018. A number of teachers in, in these states ran for the state legislature and, and won. And they were underfunded and unknown and not everyone who ran won, but nonetheless there were now more teachers in the state legislatures. And I saw this as an incredibly hopeful moment, and that was the point at which I read, wrote that book. And the book came out on January 21st of this year, 2020, and the first case of COVID appeared in the U.S. on the same day that my <laughs> book of course, I didn't realize that. But it, now the only thing anyone wants to talk about is Will the schools reopen? How can they reopen? What do we have to do to be safe? Is it safe? And so we're pretty much tied into this conversation about the COVID. But at some point, uh, hopefully, we will get back to something approaching normal. Because, mm -hmm. I don't know, it may not be soon, uh, given the way things are going. Uh, but what happened with the teachers in 2018 was that they completely changed the narrative in the United States. We had had... 20, 25, 30 years of constant complaining about the public schools, bashing the teachers, saying the teachers were bad. If the test scores didn't go up, the teachers should be fired. Teachers should be judged by test scores. On and on with criticism. Meanwhile, the when the strikes began, the media began to tell a different story. And the story they told was teachers can barely make do. Uh, some of the teachers were teaching their job. And then they had another job after school and another job on the weekend. And some teachers had three, four jobs. And they also had children to raise of their own. And they were living themselves in extremely uh, straitened circumstances. So instead of this const constant complaining about teachers, there began to be a, a new approach on the part of the major national media looking at the world from the teacher's point of view and saying, we have been underfunding our schools. And it made me realize that the billionaires have another motive in promoting privatization, which is to not pay taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we have a, a tax that is very skewed uh, towards incredibly wealthy people, and they don't want to pay more money. I mean, the Koch brothers, now there's just one Koch brother, uh, one of the major, major industrialists, who's, uh, he and his brother together were worth about $120 billion. Uh, the Waltons worth $150 billion. 
on and on with these. They didn't want to pay more taxes. They would like to have a government in which there's no Social Security, no Medicare, and everyone's on their own, and no one calls them and says, how about if we raise your taxes and, and you pay more for the common good? So the fundamental issue here, and I see this affecting not just the U.S., but countries everywhere, is whether we have a sense of the common good. And I think one of the things that impressed me about Finland was they have a, a school system that works for everyone, that has excellent teachers, that's well-respected, and they pay for it. And the problem we have in the U.S. is we're not willing to pay for it. And what was turning around just before this terrible pandemic started was that states were beginning to say we're going to have to raise taxes to pay our teachers better, uh, to have smaller class sizes, and to take better care of our public schools because they are a jewel. And I think that if there's any, there isn't, first of all, let me say there's no silver lining to the pandemic. It's horrible. Yeah. But one good thing to come out of it is that there is a renewed appreciation of the importance and the role of teachers and also of public schools because suddenly people realize that the public school is not just a place where kids go for academics. They also go for meals. They also go for medical attention if the school has a nurse. And about a quarter of our schools do not have a nurse but should. Uh, and suddenly there's a realization these are the heart of the community and we must take care of them. And, but more important, I think, is that parents who've been stuck at home, quarantined with their children, started giving up almost immediately and saying, I can't do this. How do the teachers do it with 25 or 30 kids when I can't do it with my own two children? And it's very, they realize this is, teaching is very, very hard, and it takes a lot of skill and uh, perseverance. And they, so there's a renewed respect for teachers. Teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. We're a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world, and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, listeners, isn't that fascinating? America is both similar and yet different to Australia. They've got a lot to learn from us um, because they're going down down the track that we were going down about 50 years ago. But um, Diane Ravitch and the teachers in America are great fighters and they're very inspiring. But we have our own fighters here. We have Angela Gavrilatis and next week we'll be listening to him. And also we have at the Gonski Institute in New South Wales, a Finnish man called Parsi Salberg, who is just so well known, and the week after that, we'll be listening to him. So here at the Dogs, we take a worldwide view as well as an Australian view because the fight for public education and for our teachers in our public schools is a worldwide battle. We are not alone, and it is a battle worth fighting. So that's enough for today. 
we've run out of time. I'm I'm sorry. So it's now time to say goodbye, and we'll hopefully be with you again next week. Bye for now. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.